I didn't do that. Are we done? Okay, all right. Well, it's good to see everybody tonight. Great crowd this evening. And I want to remind you of a couple of things coming up. This Sunday morning, I'm preaching a sermon on, uh, entitled, Don't Miss Church on Sunday Night. And uh, I think that'll be a message that you might want to hear about something that happened on Sunday night that was very important. And important things do happen on Sunday nights. And that's why we need to be at church every time that God gives us an opportunity to come. But the week after that, on Sunday morning, from the Gospel of John, I'm going to be preaching about the problem of suffering. And you may wonder, why does God, who has the power and the ability to stop all suffering, he could certainly do that, why does God allow it? And we're going to talk about that on Sunday in just a couple of weeks, so you might keep that in mind. But tonight, let's open our Bibles, please, to Ephesians chapter 5. We come back to our study in this great book, and... This evening we're continuing the theme of uh, Paul contrasting children of the light with children of darkness. And we notice in the previous lesson that Paul describes Christians not as just being in the light, but he says you are light. And then he describes lost people not just as being in the darkness, but he uses a much stronger term and he says they literally are darkness. And what Paul has in mind, of course, and in view is the depravity of man and that man is so engulfed in sin and so much in the dark that there's no hope that will ever come to the light in Christ unless God comes to him first in a regenerating work. And because there is such a difference between darkness and light in the physical world, what he's trying to show us is that there ought to be a comparable separation in the spiritual world. And what he means is that those who are Christians are not to live like they're still uh, people of the world. Well, tonight's lesson is about how that children of the light are to cope living in this darkened, sin-darkened world. What should our attitude and our relationship be to those who are still in the world and in darkness? And we're going to discuss a little bit about that tonight as we talk about bright lights in a dark world. I'd like you to stand with me, please, as we read God's Word. We're looking at Ephesians chapter 5 and verses 11 through 14. And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. For it is a shame even to speak of those things which are done of them in secret. But all things that are reproved are made manifest by the light. For whatsoever doth make manifest is light. Wherefore he saith, Awake thou that sleepest, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give thee light. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that you might bless the message tonight, speak to our hearts, and help us to learn from your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. One of the dangers of reading certain portions of Scripture and just lifting out a verse here and there is that when you, when you try to do that, you can come to some very erroneous conclusions. Paul's statement here that we read in verse number 11 would seem to be telling us that we need to withdraw from the world and that as Christians we need to separate ourselves as far as we can get from anybody who isn't a Christian or not a believer in Christ. In verse number 7 he said, don't be partakers with them. And in verse number 11 he says, have no fellowship with them. 
Well, of course we all know that we have to live among wicked people in this world. We live around people who just absolutely do not want to have anything to do with God. And these Ephesian Christians were living in a place that was even a more difficult mess than we even find right here in the San Francisco Bay Area. They were living among people, even as we do today, that never think about God, uh, people that some are atheist, some are pagan, and the people that we live around today, many of them have so perverted their Christianity or the ideas of Christianity that there really just is no semblance of all of any biblical practices in their lives. Well, what do you do about that? And how do you live around people who have those kinds of thoughts? Well, that's Paul's subject. And to understand what he has to say about it fully, we have to look at the whole scope of his teachings. So we can't just take a couple of verses of Scripture that we find in Ephesians and make that the sum total of Paul's doctrine on the matter, because he did teach about it in other places. And we have to really read all of this together to understand what he means when he says that we are to separate ourselves from the world. But what he's trying to point out to us without any doubt is that we are to be bright lights in a dark world. Now, let's notice some things that he teaches us here. Uh, what is the duty, our duty, as we wait for the Lord? Well, first, we're to be children of separation. Children of separation. So what is the meaning uh, of Paul's statement in verse number 11 where he says, "...have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness." Well, some people, I think, would go to the far left extreme, if you want to put it that way, and say, well, what God really intended to do was since he left us in this world, he, he saved us, but he didn't take us out of the world, then what God wants us to do is to mix it up with the people of the world, find out what it is they like, cater to those things as much as we can, and if we do that, we'll be able to win them over to our beliefs. And unfortunately, the modern church growth movement has plunged headlong into that error. The purpose-driven church model has that exactly in their mind, and they use that kind of thinking. Well, you would be very hard-pressed to uh, extract the purpose-driven church, that model, from Paul's teaching here in Ephesians. There is no doubt that he's talking about being separated from the world. He's not talking about cooperation with the world. And this chapter draws the line between darkness and light so clearly and so distinctly that not only does Paul say you shouldn't be around these people but he, and, and practice the things that they do, he says that you should not even speak of some of the things they do. So Paul would never tell us, go check out the world system, see what they do, see what they like, then borrow from that, incorporate it into the church, and that'll be the means by which you reach people. Well, separation is his first thought, and that's perfectly consistent with what we find in other places where Paul teaches. Especially, we look at the book, book of Corinthians, and Paul told the Corinthian church that uh, they were to separate from the world. And we notice that in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 that he asked five rhetorical questions. And, and he's proving by those questions why Christians are not to mix with the world. And it's interesting to us that in view of what Paul says here in Ephesians about darkness and light, that, that the, uh, the second question that Paul asked in 1 Corinthians 6.14 was, And what communion hath light with darkness? And the answer to that is a very simple one. Light and darkness do not mix. And so, therefore, they can't come together. 
So when Paul says in verse number 7 that we're not to partake with them, he means that we're not to mix in their unwholesome activities. And I think it means that there, there ought to be such a degree of separation that even though we have to work with people in the world, we have to live in the same neighborhoods with them, we go to the same shopping centers that they go to, we're among these people every day, yet the Bible is teaching us that we're not to choose them as our preferred people for our conversation, not for our recreation, and not for just plain old normal social intercourse. We're not to choose the people of the world. So to put it another way, we could say it like this. We are in the world, but not of the world. And I don't think that I could describe it any other way or any better way than the apostolic terms. Because the Bible tells us that we are pilgrims in this world. We're just passing through this country, and we folks are citizens of a heavenly country. But then you have those who want to take this to the opposite extreme, and they believe that Paul is teaching that we are to so separate ourselves from the world that they've come up with the idea of monasticism. And so they believe that what a person really needs to do is is get away from all the population, get away from everybody who's not a Christian, let's join together, let's live in communes, let's seclude seclude ourselves on, on some mountaintop somewhere, or let's go to some desert retreat and we'll be there by ourselves and we never have to interact with the world. Well, that is not Paul's meaning. And that's why I say, when you read these verses, you have to consider the whole scope of Paul's teachings and not just what he says in these two verses in Ephesians. So we want to come to the right conclusion about this. Well, Paul, in fact, explains himself on this issue in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Now, I want you to turn there for just a moment, if you would, please, because the context of what we read in 1 Corinthians 5 is very important to this argument. In 1 Corinthians 5, beginning in verse number 9, Paul says, I wrote unto you in an epistle not to company with fornicators, yet not altogether with fornicators of this world, or with the covetous, or extortioners, or with idolaters, for then must ye needs go out of the world. But now I have written unto you not to keep company, if any man that is called a brother be a fornicator, or covetous, or an idolater, or a railer, or a drunkard, or an extortioner, with such an one know not to eat. For what have I to do to judge them also that are without? Do not ye judge them that are within? But them that are without, God judgeth. Therefore, put away from among yourselves that wicked person. Well, the context of of this uh, passage is a problem of an incestuous affair that was taking place in the Corinthian church. And so Paul writes to the church, and he tells them that they need to exclude that guilty person from their fellowship. And then he says to them, you're to separate yourself from that person. But then he catches himself for just a moment, and, and as he writes this, he realizes that there might be a misunderstanding about what he's saying. And so you'll notice that in verse number 10 that we just read, that after saying not to keep company with fornicators, and that was a direct reference to the incestuous person who is a member of the church, he, he, he adds in that verse, he says, yet not altogether with the fornicators of this world, and so on, for then ye must needs go out of the world. In other words, some people might misinterpret this to mean that they could never be around any person who ever committed these types of sin. 
Well, in the Corinthian church, that would be, or in the city of Corinth at least, that would be a practical impossibility. I mean, the people were all involved in these kinds of sins, and so if they were going to completely separate themselves from those who committed these types of things, then what they would have to do is just move out of the city of Corinth, go into a place that's uninhabited, and just live there by themselves. And so he catches himself on this, and he explains this, that he's not talking about that. And as he writes to the Ephesians, he's not telling them that they have to leave the city of Ephesus, get out of that place, because there are so many people that commit these kinds of sins. So they, he was afraid then that they might misinterpret this. But what he's really trying to tell us is that we have no choice to live among these people, but we certainly do have a choice about whether we participate with them and whether we join into the type of lifestyles that they live. So that, that's part of the teaching that, of this passage. But while we're on the subject here in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, I think it will be very good for us to recognize the main point of what Paul is trying to get across here. And the main point concerns this particular problem of this incestuous person and what the church was to do with them. Now, the gist of his teaching here in 1 Corinthians 5 is that you are to separate yourself from excluded members of the church, have no fellowship with them because the separation is judgment upon their sinful activity. Now, what I'm about to say next, some of you are not going to like what I'm going to say, and you may not be friends with me after I get done with this, but I have reserved myself for quite some time from making statements about this, but I think it's time we talk about it. There are excluded members of our church. Some of them left for doctrinal reasons, and some of them left for moral reasons. And we excluded them from our fellowship because they disassociated from our church for unscriptural reasons. Now, the Bible's teaching on this matter is that we are not to fellowship with people who have been excluded from our church. We don't make them part of our party plans. We don't hang out with them as if nothing ever happened in, in what they did. You see, folks, exclusion from the church is very serious business. And when you start to defy the authority of the church and you fellowship with excluded members, you are, in essence, agreeing with them. And you're saying there's no reason why we should have excluded you. And what that does, it undermines church authority and it nullifies the effect of that exclusion. Now, of course, I think you ought to be civil to these people. You ought to be friendly when you see them. You ought to behave towards them in Christian love. But the only way that you can show them that they are under church discipline and what the church has done is right and their actions are wrong is to deal with them only in ways for the purpose of trying to correct their error. Now, of course, I'm not speaking about people who, who leave our church in a legitimate matter. I'm not speaking about people who are in fellowship with the church and they move their membership. And so they have no bias against the church and they have no reason other than they have to move away. Or, or even people who have asked for letters of dismissal from the church and they've informed us of the necessity of, of uh, joining with another congregation. That's completely different. But I want to tell you something. When people walk out of the church and they have no deference towards this body and what we think, and they have to be excluded from our fellowship, the Bible says we are to separate ourselves from them. Now, it's interesting that the teaching of 1 Corinthians makes a distinction between those that are lost and those that are saved. Now, we notice here that Paul says you cannot altogether separate yourself from the fornicators of this world. That would be impossible. But he says that you must separate yourself 
from those that the church have excluded from the body for for whatever reasons that might be, doctrinal, uh, moral issues, whatever it might be, you're to have no fellowship with them. And what that does, when we treat these folks like this, it magnifies the seriousness of the sin. And it shows them how wrong it is to walk wavered from the church and not to regard the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, maybe you don't like me talking about that, but that has been the teaching of our Baptist churches all the way back to the time of Christ. Church discipline has been preached in our churches. That's what Baptists have stood for, and we will continue to stand for that. Now, the reason that we don't today is because uh, these kinds of things have just gone by the wayside, and we want to become self-pleasers and men-pleasers rather than God-pleasers. There's a reason why these things are in the Bible. And the purpose of, of not fellowshipping with these folks is to make them understand that they need to get themselves right with God. And when you do it any other way, when, when, you, when you just act like nothing at all happened and treat them like yesterday was just as, just as good as today, then you're teaching them you haven't really done anything wrong. You're okay. There's nothing wrong with that. And possibly if we go so far, the church was wrong and you're right. You don't have the authority to do that. If you're a member of a church, you stand with your church. Now, I want to go on here. Like I say, you may not like what I have to say, but I I can't help. But but that's what Paul teaches there in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. But let's go on here because when we understand that we're to separate from the world and we know that we can't leave the world, then there is something that we need to do. And that is that we need to be children of remonstration. Now, this is pointed out in the next phrase of verse number 11. And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. Remonstrate means to present an argument in opposition. So what we're supposed to do is to reprove the unfruitful works of darkness. Well, how do we do that? Well, Paul gives us one method, or the first method he gives is in verses 8 and 9. And there he says that we are to walk as children of the light. And that's because the fruit of the Spirit is goodness, righteousness, and truth. And what we do is we expose darkness by righteous and holy living. Now, sometimes you don't even have to say anything. You just dedicate yourself to God. You live your life as an everyday example of what a Christian should be. And you know what happens? When you're around the people of the world, you begin to irritate them. You irritate lost people by the way that you live. Now, maybe you don't intend to do that, and you're not wanting to get them upset, but that's exactly what happens. Righteous and holy living is an irritation to lost people. And you know why? Because it puts a guilt trip on them. They see there's something wrong, and they don't like you exposing their sin. You know what you call that? It's called lifestyle evangelism. You just live like you're supposed to live, and sometimes you don't even have to say a word, and people will get the message. Now, Peter has a very interesting way of demonstrating lifestyle evangelism and showing us how that it can work in the home. You see, sometimes a Christian may be married to a person who's not a believer in Christ. And so they have an unbelieving spouse, and they may ask the question, well, how can I best win my my husband or my wife to the Lord? Well, Peter gives us an example of this, a wife with an unbelieving husband in 1 Peter chapter 3. And he says there, Likewise, ye wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they also may without the word be won by the conversation of the wives, while they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear. You see, you live in the same household with the person, and you can talk to them sometimes until you're blue in the face. 
And you can give them the gospel over and over and over and over again. And finally, they just shut you out. They turn you off and they don't want to hear about it anymore. Well, what do you do? I mean, if you have a mate that's lost and you want to see them get saved and they're not listening to what you have to say, what do you do? Well, Peter says that what a wife should do is just to go through the manner of her life, living like a Christian, going about her business of taking care of her husband, loving him, being in subjection to him, being holy, and then by that she may win her husband as he observes the consistency of her life. And that works the same way for a man. If your wife is not saved, then the Bible teaches you that you ought to love your wife, treat her rightly, be a godly man, live your faith, be a good husband, be a good father, act like a believer. And the Bible teaches us that by that, we may be able to win that lost one. But this also works with people that are out in the world. The principle still holds true. Maybe they've stopped listening to what you have to say, but what you need to do is continue to live that life. And if your life is not lived in consistency and you don't live like a Christian, don't ever hope that you're going to be able to win that person out there. It just won't happen. So you have to present that great testimony before them. So you can reprove or you can remonstrate by your life. But as important as that is, I mean, as important as righteous and holy living is, that's not the primary meaning that Paul is trying to get across in this verse. He means to say that by the way you live... That's one way, but you need to be more proactive than that. You need to go beyond that. And so what he means primarily here is that you are to convince with evidence. And that means that you have to know enough of the Word of God to take that Word and show others how harmful that their actions are and what that means to their eternal soul. Now, no matter what arguments we make in any other way, and there are many arguments to be made and many ways to approach it, there's still the main way winning people to the Lord is done by faith in the Word of God, giving people the gospel of Jesus Christ. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. But we also need to understand that when we give the Word of God, we have to be wise as we give it. Give it in a way that you're supposed to present the truth. Now, there's some Christians that are that are holier than thou. And so when they see some evil, they go about denouncing it with some kind of a superior attitude. And what they really want to do is just knock that sinner down, grind his face in the dirt, chew him up and spit him out because they don't like sin. You know, it's kind of like in the Westerns. You've seen these Westerns on television where a cowboy goes in the bar and he gets in a fight with somebody and he cold cocks the fellow, knocks his face down, knocks him down on the floor and his face is lying there on the floor and he comes along and he takes his spur and he goes right across his cheek and splits it open. You ever seen that in the movies? Oh, that's my favorite part. That's my favorite part. But that's exactly the way the Pharisees were like. I mean, they were, they were so holy and they were so pious that they showed nothing but disgust for sin and for sinners. And they were always standing around pointing their fingers at everybody. And they're saying, you know, that person's not as good as I am. And that's not the right attitude. But we need to remember is that these people are in the dark. And they are even aware that they're in the dark. They've been blinded by their sinful nature. They don't fully understand the consequences of their sin. And so these people do not need your judgment. God's already judged them. You don't need to judge them. What they really need is enlightenment. And you're to be the one who's there with all the godly evidence that takes to show them what can help them. Now that leads me to point number three. And that is that we are to be children of illumination. We're light and we must bear the light. 
Now, if you want to get down to the real reason why God saved you and he didn't take you immediately out of the world, here's your reason. He wants you, well, this is one of the reasons of the reasons, but he wants you to be a light in this world. He wanted you to be a light for him. And you know what happens uh, when you walk in the light? If you're walking in the light, you know what happens to you? You get lit up. That's what happens to you. You get lit up. You know, Jesus is the sun and you're the moon. And when the moon or the sun shines on the moon, the moon gets lit up. And that's what happens to you. You walk in the light as he is in the light and you'll also be lit up. You'll have the sun shining on you. Now, when it's pitch black outside, isn't that when a full moon is at its brightest? And when you're in this darkened world, in a sin-darkened world, and you're living for Christ and walking in the light, that's when you shine the brightest for Jesus Christ. Remember what Jesus had to say about it in the Sermon on the Mount? He was speaking about this very issue, about illumination, about the light. And he says in Matthew 5, verses 14 to 16, Ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick. And it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Now, in our 13th verse of our text, it says, But all things that are reproved are made manifest by the light. For whatsoever doth make manifest is light. I think we could take the last part of verse 13 in just a couple of ways. If what you do exposes sin, then you can rightfully be called light. But if you're a person who likes to get down on the sinner's level... And by your life, there's no difference between being a saved person and being a lost person. Then you have no right to be called the light. If you don't expose sin, if you don't illuminate it, you're not light. But the scripture is telling us here that anything, anything that effectively uncovers unfruitful works of darkness, that is light. But then I also think there's another meaning here. And that is if you are light, you will also bring others to the light. And I think that's what Jesus had in mind when he was speaking in that 16th verse of Matthew chapter 5. He said, they will see your good works and they will glorify the Father which is in heaven. So they'll also come to the light. So here's what light does. Light exposes and cleanses. Now sometimes all that we're interested in is just uncovering the sin. And with glee almost, we want to uncover people's sins and expose it. And we don't really care too much about doing anything with it. You see, if you're a finger-pointing Christian, and that's what you like to do, finger-pointers love to do this. They love to prove how holy and pious and how righteous they are. And they like to point out other people's sin. They want to expose it, get it to the light. But they sure aren't very good about doing anything about it. They're not there to help somebody who's got a problem. They just love the part of exposing the sin and getting it into the light. They're sort of like the people that we read about in the parable uh, or the story of the Good Samaritan. Remember what happened there? Here was a man traveling to Jericho. He was beaten and robbed and left for dead. Along comes a religious priest. The priest comes along, a holy man. He sees that man lying there, and he passes by on the other side. A little bit later, there's a Levite who came by. He also did the same. He's supposed to be a holy, righteous person. But he sees that man laying there and he passes by on the other side. Now those were men that saw the problem. They could identify the problem. They could point out the problem. They just don't care anything about doing something about the problem. But along came the Good Samaritan. What did he do? 
He took that man and he, and he cleaned up his wounds. He bound up his wounds. He put him on his own beast. He took him to the inn where he could recuperate. And then when it was all said and done, he paid the bill for him. Now there's somebody who saw the problem and he did something about the problem. And that's what God says we need to be. We need to be a part of the solution here, folks. Help people that have the problems. Well, thank the Lord that when Jesus comes, he not only identifies our problem, but he does something about the problem. He takes this this sinfulness that we have, this problem that we have, this foul, wretched nature of sin, and Jesus cleanses us from that sin. So here's the thing Paul's trying to tell us. Don't just be a finger pointer. There's no value in being a finger pointer. Be somebody who illuminates and be somebody who brings that person to the light and helps them and shows them the error of their way and the way that that can be corrected. Now finally, we're children of separation, we're children of remonstration and children of illumination, and we're also children of resuscitation. You don't know how hard it is to come up with these things sometimes. But children of resuscitation. Now, verse number 14 here. This is, this is really, really one of the hardest verses in Ephesians uh, to, to interpret. Ephesians 5, 14. It says, Wherefore he saith, Awake thou that sleepest, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give thee light. And the question is, is Paul talking about a lost person who's dead? Or is he speaking about saved people who've just spent too long sleeping and it's just like they're dead because they don't know what's going on around them. They're not a part of what's going on around them. Well, I really think many Bible commentators believe as well that you can take this two ways and uh, both ways have very valid points. So first of all, let's apply it for just a moment to a Christian. Sometimes there is so little life in Christians that they're practically indistinguishable from the people of the world. Now, maybe you remember that little story that I told you about G. Campbell Morgan, the great English preacher in the first part of the, uh, of the 20th century. And uh, he had somebody, a church member, who came to him and, and told him that he'd been working with another person for five years, and he just found out that that person was a Christian. And he asked G. Campbell Morgan what he thought about it. And you remember that G. Campbell Morgan said, well, I don't think either one of you are Christians. I mean, how could you work with somebody, besides somebody, for five years and not even know whether they're a Christian? I mean, why, why would you never talk about that? Well, I would dare say that we could have members of Brian Baptist Church that are like that. I mean, they may work on a job until retirement, and they've never found out if that person who works next to them uh, is a believer in Christ. They don't know where they go to church. They don't know anything about them. And so what are they? They are embedded Christians. Nobody really even knows that they were Christians at all. So they've been asleep at the wheel. And what they should have been doing is being a light for Jesus Christ. Now here's what happens, folks. The longer you slumber, the less sensitive you are to sin. Less sensitive you are to your own sin and the sin that goes on around you. Now if you think about this for just a minute, you wonder what happened to a country like the United States that about 50 years ago... We all called ourselves a Christian nation. What happened to us? Chalk it up to sleeping Christians. That's what happened. Now we've got a Mormon running for president. And we've got Christians who think that Mormons are also Christians. And we've got people thinking, well, it really doesn't matter if our leaders are at least even a little bit orthodox in their faith. We don't even care about it anymore. We better wake up. The longer that we sleep about this, the longer we keep our mouths shut, the shorter is going to be our time of survival. 
You see, when Christ or a Christian decides he's going to wake up, that's when he can expect God's going to give him more light. God's going to give him more of the Word to live for, more knowledge there, more power in the Spirit, more power to make a difference in the world in which he lives. So perhaps Paul is speaking about Christians here when he says that we need to wake up. Well, that's a good interpretation, but it seems to me that it's, that it's really more in keeping with his use of the word dead here as he does in the rest of, of, of uh, Ephesians to refer to a lost person. And certainly he did that, we know, in Ephesians 2, verse number 1, when he said that we were dead in trespasses and sin. And he goes on with the results of that condition. He talks about depravity. And in at least four different sections of Ephesians, he brings up that again about the problem of man's depravity and the fact that he's dead in his sins. So I think that's probably what he's talking about. So if he means lost sinners, then what I think he's trying to tell us is we have the power to raise the dead. We have the power to raise the dead. Now, that's comparatively speaking, of course. Jesus raised the dead. The apostles raised the dead. Elijah raised the dead. And now God has given us the power to raise the dead. Well, don't, don't go out tonight to the Santa Rosa Cemetery with that information and, and try to raise dead people, because that's not what I'm talking about. God has not given us power to raise the physically dead, but he's given us power to raise the spiritually dead. And you know where that power is? It's in the gospel that we preach. That raises the spiritually dead, and you're God's instrument to raise the dead. What, just like the apostles had no power in themselves to raise the physically dead, so you don't have any power in yourself to raise the spiritually dead. You do that by the power of Christ, but you become God's instrument to do that. God used the apostles. He used Elijah. He used them to bring to life physically dead people. And this is what God does with us. He uses us to bring to life spiritually dead people. He, we're his instrument. Now, as near as I can figure out from studying the Bible... There are very few people in Scripture that were raised physically from the dead. There are a few, but not a whole lot. And uh, the only thing that might possibly raise that number to make it even more accountable on, on a couple of hands would be when uh, people were raised at the resurrection of Christ. Remember, the story is there that when Christ arose from the dead, there were also many graves of saints that were open, and they also arose from the dead. But that's not a significant number compared to all the people that lived and died. But when we start talking about raising people to spiritual life, that's a totally different story because there are thousands upon thousands and thousands that are raised. We have the power to raise millions of people. In Revelation chapter 11, it tells us there that those that were worshiping around the throne, the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. What's thousands of thousands? If you're a mathematician, that's millions and that's what God has given us the power to do, to raise millions of people just by preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. So whenever you get that feeling, well, I'm the last one that's left. There's really no Christians, but what's right here? Just remember, there are millions of them out there that are still believing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when you get to heaven, you'll have plenty of company. You're not going to be lonely. So when the spiritually dead awaken, the Bible says they receive light. Now, I don't want to belabor this point and beat it to death because goodness knows I've made, I've spoken about this plenty of times before, but I can't leave this, I can't go away from it without noticing the order. First, there is awakening, and then there's light. And you know why? Because dead people can't see the light. 
Dead people have to be brought to life first before they see the light. So they have to wake up first. And what is it that God has done in regeneration? He wakes the dead sinner first, then he shines in the light. Now, that's one more way that Paul demonstrates to us that most of the Baptists today really do not have this right. They want us to believe that we give light in order to awaken dead sinners. Well, if God hasn't already quickened the person to life, he'll never see the light. Do you know who spoke those words in in verse number 14? Is that Paul speaking? No, it's not. It's a quotation from the Old Testament. It's the Holy Spirit speaking. And the Holy Spirit says, Awaken, rise from the dead, then he pours in the light. And that's just one more proof given by Paul that salvation is all of God and not of man. And these wonderful folks from you know where that say regeneration does not precede repentance and faith, they need to wrestle a little bit longer with Ephesians 5.14. Now let me finish by quoting from Matthew Henry. He says, Some indeed understand this as a call to sinners and to saints, to sinners to repent and turn, to saints to stir up themselves to their duty. The former must arise from their spiritual death, and the latter must awake from their spiritual deadness. So there's an application to be made to lost people and to saved people. I know most of you in here tonight, you're saved, you claim to be saved, and so it's our responsibility to wake up and start doing something for the Lord. So what do we do while we're still here below? Well, we're bright lights in a dark world, and we have to be children of of separation and children of remonstration and children of illumination and children of resuscitation. What we need to do is just stick to what God has given us to do and to reach this world for Christ. That's our duty. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for, uh, once again, opportunity to preach the word. We ask you, Lord, that we might take this, we might understand. We truly do need to be bright lights in this dark world. May we take that responsibility in the way that you've given it with all seriousness. And, Lord, may we understand we need to separate from the world. We can't be of the world even though we have to be in the world. So we pray, Lord, that you might bless our people tonight. Draw us close to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.